0: get remembered.
1: Here's the wind-up. Legends never die. Basketball hits deep. The right Way back
0: there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth.
1: Major League Baseball's history in first person.
2: Conversations that span almost 20
1: years.
0: It is 9:46 p.m.
1: With the men who saw and made that history.
0: Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch.
1: Many of whom are no longer with us.
0: Swung on
3: and missed the perfect game.
1: Stories from the 1930s. High five ball going deep. To the 21st century. Hey.
0: This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch?
1: Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris D'Amino, and this is our continued trek through the history of Major League Baseball, one conversation at a time. For those of you who have listened to an episode or two, or hopefully three, thanks for coming back today. For those of you who have just found us, thanks, and I hope after you listen to today's episode, you go back and find a few others that might interest you. Here's what I hope you find out if you don't know. It doesn't matter who the subject of a specific episode is. I promise you will hear about their teammates, their cities, their opponents, and stories that seem to at times come from beyond the left field wall. The history of some of these men, very much including today's guest, reflect the times not only that they played in, but lived in. Many of these gentlemen will speak of their childhoods. And remember, for some, that means the 1930s, 40s, and certainly 50s. When they speak of how they got from a small town anywhere to recalling and telling us about their first day in the bigs, I hope the social aspect of American history is not lost on you. As I say before, every one of these, these are firsthand accounts, conversations, not interviews, that hopefully feel like the three of us, me, the guest, and you, have pulled up chairs and became new old friends. Before I tell you about how I connected with this Hall of Famer and why it was so important to do just that, I want to ask that if you enjoy what you hear today, could you take a few minutes and maybe tell a friend or two, a baseball fan or six? And if you can hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you are listening on, you'll be alerted when a new episode drops. Lastly, if you listen on Apple or iTunes, can you rate and maybe write a quick review? Been told that that does help more people become aware of hardball. Today's guest, Lawrence Eugene Doby, 13-year major leaguer, seven-time All-Star, seven appearances in his first eight seasons, as a matter of fact, two home run titles, an RBI title, and a runner-up finish in the 1954 MVP race. And that's just a few things that you see on paper. Here's the deal. Larry Doby was much more than numbers on paper. If you don't know the story, he was the second African-American player in the major leagues, signed by Bill Veck and the Cleveland Indians on what we found out a couple of weeks ago on Hardball from our guest Carl Erskine, started with a conversation between Branch Rickey and Veeck, pointing out the abilities that Larry had shown in the Negro Leagues playing for the Newark Eagles. Strong, fast, and incredible high school athlete who played basketball in college, before being drafted into service during World War II. You will hear the story of how Larry played with grown men at the age of 15. It's a good one. How moving to Patterson, New Jersey from South Carolina helped shape who he was. How the perception of being second might have made it, quote, easier for him in the bigs. It didn't. And how his reflection on his life and career had come into focus more in his latter years. So, you know, I had asked Larry about a year and a half before this to sit down with me, but his wife was dealing with health issues and Larry was not up for anything close to an upbeat conversation, or as he said, we, and I love that he and his wife were still a we after more than 55 years of marriage, Are just trying to spend our time together. His wife unfortunately did pass in 2001, and you will hear in his voice how devastating that was to him. And I was so grateful that after speaking to him a few times to check in on how he was doing, it led to him saying he was, quote, ready to tell his story. One phone conversation the next day to thank him again. After this, he seemed happy that he did it. He passed about six months after we did this sit down. Here's the good news. And for more than a few men, they never get their due while they are alive. His induction into baseball's Hall of Fame in 1998 afforded him the right to thank those who helped him get there and to have his moment that he earned both as a player and as a man. I hope you enjoy our time with Hall of Famer Larry Doby.
3: Down comes
2: the right arm, the pitch, and overhand, basketball swung on.
0: There goes the fly ball towards left field,
3: going back fast
0: as Kennedy, Kennedy gets there and he takes it and the Cleveland Indians are the world's champions of 1948.
1: He of course is in the Hall of Fame as well he should be. Mr. Larry Doby joins us tonight on the Legends of the Game segment. Mr. Doby, how are you today? Very good. I appreciate you coming on this evening.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Mr. Doby, a couple of things, and there's so much I do want to touch base with you on. Um, one of the things that I did not know, you had actually played before service time in World War II in Newark, New Jersey with the Newark Eagles. I had known that you had played in 46 with them, but I did not realize you had actually started your professional career in 1942, correct?
4: Well, I graduated high school in 1942, and I played the summer with the Newark Eagles, the rest of the summer with the Newark Eagles, and under... Assumed name because I had a scholarship to Long Island University for basketball and baseball, so I played under the name of Larry Walker. But then, came September of '42, uh, I went. I attended Long Island University,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and then uh, January of '43, I got drafted into service. So I was in the service until January of '46.
1: And then you come back and you play. I them. came out
4: of service in '46, and I joined the Eagles, spring training in Jacksonville, Florida and played the entire 46 year, and we won the Negro World Championship. And then 47, I uh, went to spring training with the uh, New Eagles, and uh, July 5th of 47, I, I got signed by uh, Bill Beckford, Cleveland Indians.
1: And, Club. and, of course, everybody knows just a few weeks before that, actually, Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier with the Brooklyn Dodgers. But there's a little bit of a difference between you and Jackie. Jackie, I think, was about 28 years old, and you were a young man of, of 22 um, was there any talk that, that in the Negro League itself? Jackie had played the 46th season in the minor leagues, which right. probably helped him as well. Right. You actually get signed, and you basically show up in Cleveland, and there you go, it's time to play baseball. You did not really have maybe some of the seasoning that Jackie had, correct?
4: Well, no, I, 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 I've I, never got to the point where I can make a difference in terms of comparison with Jackie playing in Montreal in forty-six and me playing in Newark in forty-six. I think if you look back at the history of those of us who were involved in the early stage of, of integrating baseball, um, most of them came out of Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. And uh, my situation was probably a little unusual in terms of going from Newark to uh, Cleveland in terms of the way people thought of the two leagues. In other words, they, I don't think they would put the Newark Eagles Team with a AAA ball club, or as good as a AAA ball club, and certainly not as good as a major ball club. But now, when you start talking about my my situation coming from Newark and being successful, Jackie's situation coming from uh, Kansas City Monarchs to the, to the Montreal and to Brooklyn being successful, Ernie Banks is another person that I, I that I remember coming out of the Negro leagues to the Cubs and being successful. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that uh, my training and basic knowledge uh, with with the God-given ability uh, made it possible for me to be coming from a Negro League into Major Leagues. And I think a lot of people didn't look at it that way in terms of being able to move out of Negro Leagues into the American League or the National League because I think the, the, uh, the opinion of most people that – that the uh, Negro League was not as strong in, as uh, the American or National League, but that the Negro League's top team would probably be as strong as the Triple-A ball club. And if you look back at it and look at the history of the Negro League, which is not too many people can because age wise, but if you, if you produce players like uh, Josh Gibson and Shatra Page and Buck Leonard and Cool Papa Bell and and uh, Sammy T. Hayes, those kinds of people, and, I, and you've been forced to play with and against those kinds of people. Then that's going to bring out the best ability, as far as you're concerned, and you have the best competition. So when you compare that myself and, and probably Jack, I'm going from Newark to Cleveland. He coming from from the Kansas City Monarchs to Montreal Royals to the Brooklyn Dodgers. He might have been able to come from Kansas City Royals to uh- mm-hmm. to the uhrick and dodge and, and, and have been successful
1: well the names you just mentioned if people don't believe that playing in the negro leagues was akin to playing in the major leagues i mean no, you know, when no. don newcomb and and, no. and some of the other names that you just mentioned and,
4: and, and it's hard it's hard for in my opinion it's hard for a person to make that assumption because how many games did you see the negro leagues play mm-hmm. and you uh, know how much did you see in writing in other words the meter didn't carry uh the Negro leagues like carry uh, the major leagues. So I think it would be awful hard for a person to make any kind of comparison if he hasn't been involved or doesn't know anything about it or haven't read anything about, about the about the league. Mr.
1: Dobie, would were people silly enough even after you came up to Cleveland or many years later, were they silly enough to believe that well, since Jackie had paved the way, Larry had it a little bit easier. That 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 might be an argument that would be ridiculously insane, would it not?
4: I mean I, just, I mean, I don't think that—I'm uh, not calling anybody stupid, but mm-hmm. if you're living in a, in, a, in a segregated society, why would one uh, league make it different from the other league, make it easier for me, when we're all of color, when we're all in a segregated—I'm in the Army, I'm segregated. Uh, you know, so what makes people think that it's going to be easier for me coming in the American League than it was for Mr. Robinson going to the National League, when you have two people of color— where you have, he can't stay in hotels, I can't stay in hotels, he can't ride certain cabs, I can't ride certain cabs, he can't eat in certain restaurants, I can't eat in certain restaurants. So how would you say that he made it easier? It's impossible.
3: In
1: 11 weeks, it's not as if the nation had turned in 11 weeks to say, okay, this is acceptable. If
4: you're fighting for, for, for your country and you're segregated, what makes people think that if one comes in, and another one come after him that he's going to be treated different. Well, it, I can't go to the hotels, I can't go to restaurants. Now, I, I had a I there was a, there was a kid from Mexico that played on my team who were allowed to go in hotels with the team, but I was not allowed to go in hotels with the team. Now, I'm 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 an American citizen. I was born in this country. My parents were born in this country. Certainly their parents and their parents were were, were from Africa, but I was born in this country. Here's a person that was not born in this country, yet he comes to this country, makes his money, goes back to his country, yet he's not segregated again. So when, when people, you see, you, you know, you've got to look at the history and go back. Like, now, a lot of people know that, but they want to hide it.
1: Right. You and know? You also, I read a story that told me that initially, I guess Lou Boudreau was the manager, but when you meet your teammates, it's not as if everybody said, Larry, great to have you here.
4: No. Who said that?
1: No, that's what I'm saying. It wasn't
4: as if that was the no, situation. No, no, no. I, 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 the, the, the greetings I got, the, the number one greeting I got, which I was comfortable with, was Bill Beck. Mm-hmm. And the other was a fellow by the name of Joe Gordon. And the other two uh, three people who were kind to me was uh, Jim Hegan and Bob Lemon. And the rest of those guys were in another world. You know? And I and I never held out against them. I never got to the point where... Uh, I thought of them as being bad people. I always thought of them as being the kinds of people that's just the kind of situation they grew up under, and this is probably the first time they've been that close to, uh, to uh, people of color and not knowing anything about I know more about them than they knew about mm-hmm. me because I had to study them. It didn't have, they took me for granted. And, number one, a lot of them couldn't uh, realize the kind of talent I had because you're not supposed to have that kind of talent. You're supposed to be dumb. You're not to have any smarts. But you, they forget the fact that I'm of a color and they're of a color, but the man above gave us all the talent. Now it depends on what we do to develop the talent, to make the talent better, to make ourselves better.
1: Now, a lot of people know that Branch Rickey, obviously, when he signed Jackie Robinson, a lot of people might not know that Bill Veck, as early as 1944, was trying to actually
4: yeah, integrate
1: the major leagues.
4: Exactly. But Bill Beck could have never been the first guy to, to hire a black man to, to open the color barrier because Bill Beck was not considered as Mr. Ricky was considered mm-hmm. in baseball. Bill Beck was considered as Maverick and Bonham and Bailey and all that kind of stuff. And, and that was part of them saying to Bill Beck, you're too close to the underdog.
1: Now, I know you, you were having a great year in 1947, but why do you think Bill Beck picked you?
4: age plus uh, ability,
3: mm-hmm.
4: I think the two things had a lot to do with it. Now, certainly he could have waited until uh, the end of the year, but by then there would have probably been other people. And see, one of the things that were happening in baseball at that time, the American League was slow in integrating baseball. The National League was much faster. But all of a sudden now you get a Banks and you get a, uh, a Willie Mays, you get a Hank Aaron. All these people are going to the National League. So here's a guy who's 22 years old, who's had a good year in 46, who's having a good year in 47, certainly going to be grabbed by some of their National League teams. And if, if you look back at the history, and I'm the first one in the American League, then there weren't too many American League teams looking for Afro-American players to uh, be a part of their organization. And some clubs uh, didn't want any parts of it. Some clubs just want one, so he can put him in the minor league and say, "Well, I've got one in the minor league."
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And, and and some clubs, uh, you know, waiting until fifty-four, or fifty-five, and fifty-six before they decide to uh, to uh, have a, a a person of color in their ball club.
1: Mr. Dobie, do you think at twenty-two you were prepared, or did you understand what was actually going to be laid out in front of you in, in well, forty-seven pro- and forty-eight?
4: When you talk about baseball, I, just, I, thought, I always thought that I was prepared. I always thought that I could play baseball regardless, and I never looked at baseball as a white or black thing. I look at baseball as baseball and having the ability to play it. And that, that's the only thing that, uh, that ran across my mind, that I could play. I never doubted myself that I couldn't play. I never put it into any kind of classification that since I'm like Negro ball and white ball, I mean, the ball is white. You know, you're able to hit it, you catch it, throw it, and run and play as good as anybody else. And that's that's the difference.
1: What about from the life perspective, life point of view? Were you prepared at 22 for what it is you'd have to deal with?
4: Yeah. Now, you had to because you grew up in that society. Mm-hmm. You know, it's impossible to tell you uh, for anybody who grew up grew up back in the segregation part of our uh, country that you weren't prepared for segregation. Sure you were. If I had never been segregated, I probably wouldn't have been prepared to be segregated in baseball, but it's been, I've been segregated all my life. You go into the Army, you're segregated. You can't go into this restaurant in, in the in the city that you live in. And you, you've been an outstanding uh, athlete in high school, never had any problems with anybody. The kids uh, that you played with and grew up with, uh, you know, respect you. Your teachers made sure that uh, you got the grades you could pass or you could perform, and your coaches were like like fathers to you. So there was no problem. But the only problem was the segregation. If I went to the movie, if a bunch of kids uh, that lived close by, and we all walked to the movie. I had to go upstairs. They had it. They were downstairs. But when you go to the movies, I go upstairs. You go downstairs. When the movie's over, I meet you downstairs. We we'll walk back to our homes. And you know, being able to be a part of that, and being able to grow up in a segregated uh, situation, you uh, were prepared for segregation because that's what you lived in all your life. The only hypocritical part of the whole thing is that in athletics, it's supposed to be teamwork, togetherness. And here, you're involved in a situation where uh, you're on the field, fine teammates together. But once you leave the field, it's it's a, it's a different story. So. It what segregation. is being adopted to uh, baseball. It wasn't no big problem. The big problem was the loneliness. Because mm-hmm. even in high school, when the game is over, you will end up being at a soda fountain having a soda and talking about the game, win, lose, or draw. You know, if you leave the high school, you're always on the same bus. When you finish the game, if you go down town, you get back on the same bus. Come back to your high school. And you walk, home, or if some kid got a car, you ride home, but not too many kids got a car, so you did a lot of walking. But once you got to the main league, you know, a cab, if you go to certain places, and then sometimes uh, you couldn't ride white cabs, you had to wait for black cabs. And when black cabs only have two in the town, it's a long wait.
1: How did you deal with the loneliness itself?
4: I don't know. I think the only answer I can give for that is can't wait till the next day comes so he get to the ballpark. And if you had a good day, that takes you a lot that long. If you had a bad day, then it takes you that much longer to get get rid of it. But uh, thank God I had more good days than bad days because if I'd had bad days, I wouldn't have been successful. I wouldn't have been there that long.
1: Well, you certainly had a lot of good days. Now, Lou Boudreau, I believe, was the gentleman who put you into the outfield, correct? Who? Was, was Lou Boudreau managing yeah. when, when you moved to the outfield?
4: Yeah, but he never told me about it. I, I, was, I got that from, uh, uh, we had a fellow by the name of Bill McKechnie, mm-hmm. who was the coach. Okay, uh, He probably told Bill McKechnie. But Bill McKechnie came to me at the end of uh, the 47th season because I had only played one game, and the rest of the time, and I pinched it. Mr. McKechnie came to me and said that, you know, Joe is going to play second base on this ball club for quite a while. And he said, have you ever played the outfield? I said, no. I said, high school, I played third, I played short, I played second, and I played some first. But I've never played the outfield before anywhere. So. Well, you, you picked it up pretty good. Pardon? You picked it up pretty well. Yeah, so he said to me, he said, when you go home this winter, said, get, get a book on how to play the outfield. And at the time, Tommy Hendrick had written a book about how to play the outfield. So I bought the book, I read it, and I went to spring training, and I cooked the book with me. And they put me in right field for the first uh, exhibition game. And I played the entire, all the exhibition game in right field. And then the season opened. I was in right field. They had a fellow by the name of Thurman Tucker playing center field. And, and Thurman got off to a slow start. And uh, one day I came to the ballpark and my lineup. In the lineup, I had me in center field. And I had a fellow by the name of Hank Edwards in right field. And uh, that was it. I played 10 years over there, you, you know, in the, uh, in center field, but yeah. I'd never played it before until, uh, until, uh, you know, until 1948.
1: Well, that's pretty amazing because you become an all-star center fielder, certainly. And, uh, well, you
4: know, you thank God for that, for being able to have the talent that you can move around like that mm-hmm. because yeah. it, there was a legitimate reason in terms of second base or shortstop at third, because you got Keltner at third, you got Boudreau at short, you got Gordon at second. So that makes sense that, uh. You know, you're not going to play any of those positions within the next two or three years. And I think they recognize that I have enough talent that I could play in the major league. And if I could play another position, it would make it easier for the whole situation in terms of solving the problem, if it's such a thing as a problem, from the, my position.
1: Mr. Dolby, what was your relationship with uh, Jackie Robinson?
4: Uh, no, we're not socialized that much. Mm-hmm. I know... We were allowed to play uh, 30 games at the end of the season. They call it bombstorming. So he, we would form two teams out of Negro leagues, and we'd bombstorm for 30 days. And then, of course, we come home, and he had his social uh, affairs. I had my social affairs. And uh, I had great respect for him. He had great respect for me. But when he, when people think that we were close or we were socialized, no, we never did. We never
1: did that. All your time in the major leagues and the time you spent in the Negro leagues, people have told me that, and this is coming from quite a few people, uh, Josh Gibson, nobody hit the baseball harder or farther than Josh Gibson. Do you think that's a fair statement?
4: I compared Josh Gibson with anybody that i played with or against both major leagues and and uh, and, uh, and Negro leagues. And there were some people in Negro leagues hit the ball a long ways and strong. And there were certain some great hitters and strong people in the, in the American League and National League when I got there. I didn't, I didn't see anybody that could do it any better. And I'm not talking about the knowledge. I'm just talking about comparing myself mm-hmm. uh, with people that I played with, people I played against, and played, with, played against Josh and comparing Josh with some of the great players that I played against in the American League and in the, the Negro League. You, you had but a chance. There was no better, no better player and no better power. You know, I've, I've, and you probably are more familiar with the power of Mickey Mantle mm-hmm. than you are with Babe Ruth. And uh, when you look at uh, Mickey Mantle's power, you see Josh Gibson power.
1: And actually, Buck O'Neill actually had said the same thing. He had said the only guy that he really thought could hit a baseball as hard or as far was actually Mickey Mantle, but he thought Josh Gibson was fairly
4: unprecedented in that regard. Josh has had the power of anybody that I've ever played against and more power than some people that I've played against. But I think uh, if, if, a, uh, if a kid who grew up with the Yankees during the Mantle time, you could tell him that uh, that kind of power Josh Gibson had or someone that grew up before that could talk about the power of Josh Gibson and Babe Ruth. Now, if you talk about today's player, you certainly could compare Josh with, Soto and with McGuire and with Bobby Baron Browns in terms of power. Now you may have a question in your mind. or uh, You may debate the fact that just a difference in the ball and a mm-hmm. difference in the bat, and uh, it's hard to compare. You're right, it's hard to compare. But if you go back to the era, these people played with uh, with a good a dead ball or a lively ball or a bat or whatever, they produced the same kind of distance and same kind of home runs in that condition that these guys are doing in, in the, under the conditions that they're playing under now.
1: And, Mr. Dobie, of course, we know you not only play in the major yeah. leagues, you manage in the major leagues. Bill Beck gives you a job as a manager. And, uh, right. Did you enjoy that experience?
4: Yeah. I think the toughest part of that, certainly to think that, as most people know, is that you got to have players. I mean, if you got good players, you're mm-hmm. going gonna to win. If you don't have good players, then you're not going to win. So it's hard to put yourself in a position to grade yourself as good, bad, or you're different from a that standpoint. I think the players first, and then and their ability, and then how you're able to get the best out of the player per day, how you treat players.
1: And unfortunately, with the Cleveland team, there really wasn't all that much talent.
4: Well, I was, I was the White Sox.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, the White Sox, excuse yeah, me.
4: Yeah, the talent wasn't as good as it had been. The They had great talent in 77. In mm hmm. Because he almost pulled out uh, uh, the the Championship, but Kansas City got hot the last week and, and ran us out of it. But when you look at that team in in '77, you had Richie Zisk, you had Oscar Gamble, who were who were great players, who brought a lot of uh, runs to the team, and you had a fairly, you know, decent pitcher staff. So you didn't have a bad mm-hmm. that bad of a ball But now comes '78. You lose Austin Gamble, and you lose Richie Ziss. So those are two people that hit 30 home runs, drove in 100 runs. If you don't have replacements for that, then you're gonna you're gonna have a problem. I enjoy I enjoyed the manager. I enjoyed you know being with those people and trying to you know do the best you can to bring out the best talent. But you know, you, talent can come in, in to a certain level, and then that's that's it. You know. And you're not taking anything away from him. And he'd always said to me, "I'm not going to give you. I'm going to give you a chance to manage, but I'm not going to do it until I find, you know, good players for you."
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, I, I, he sort of handwriting on the wall that he was probably wouldn't be around too much longer, and he was, you know, was here you know, Plus, you know, was in a in a chance of selling the ball club. Right. So he kept his word, although under difficult circumstances. And I, and I appreciate it because at least I got a little bit of experience. I would have liked had a little more exposure, a little more time. You know, I can't say to you whether I was good or bad. Just I mean, too, you too can't look at eighty some games right. and make a comparison. The only thing I can say at the end of the season, we won like 30-some games in like in, from August to September. So, you know, you, you, your baseball beginning to, the kids begin to play better baseball, and I think, they, you know, at the end of the season, everybody's going to play a little harder because you want to uh, produce a better contract for the for the coming year. Right.
1: Mr. Doby, a few things as we finish up, and again, I do appreciate the time with Hall of Famer Larry Doby today. I read a story in 1948. You hit a big home run in, uh, in the 48 World Series. Right. And was it a pitcher by the name of Steve Gromek? Steve Gromek. Right. You guys had a moment that probably baseball had really never seen before.
4: No, I think that's the first time that kind of a emotional picture was shown all over the, all over the world. Why did to
1: tell people what we're talking about.
4: Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, that was not anything that was planned. You know, it couldn't have been a movie script because it was a happy moment. You you didn't think about the color. You thought about a winning aspect. You're being a part of a winning aspect, and you've been successful. And then later on, the history comes in terms of. First black uh, uh, Caucasian embracing other in that fashion in baseball, and uh, you know that has not happened in the Negro in the uh, National League before. Mm-hmm. So this is another first, but it goes to show you that you know people can respond to that kind of situation without thinking about what the color of the skin is, because it would probably been some hesitation in that particular. Uh, photo if you uh he or I had been thinking anything about color this was now, just I'm not about saying baseball after over you know after the picture taken and you see it that you would not apply color to it but at that moment uh, when when it, when the embracement came from him and uh, and I uh, you can't say that that was that was a player thing it was just about baseball Pardon? it was just about baseball at yeah. that moment right yeah. the only you know the, the, the thing about that is it doesn't bother me. It, it, I, I think about it more than I used to do in the beginning. There was I was never interviewed about that particular incident in terms of hitting a home run to win the game. Mm-hmm. You know, normally when you hit a home run to win the game, you'll see somebody comes and say, well, what kind of pitch it was, and blah, 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 blah. The one came to me because at that time, you didn't have that much interview with the, with the media. You know, and I'm not putting it into any color standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I probably wouldn't understand it if I would. Because what's color got to do with the guy hitting the home run in the World Series, one of the greatest moments can happen to anybody and you don't and you don't interview. Then you have to look at the people that you're surrounded by, number one. Number two, you didn't have as many experts or as many writers then that you have now. You know. So it wasn't no big thing for to be passed over because there wasn't a lot of people at that time writing about the Negroes in baseball. And the other part is it wasn't that many people that, you know, you have to worry about in terms of uh, saying, well, that's the that's news, and I'm going to get it first.
1: Well, I know it's about 54 years later, but what kind of pitch did you hit?
4: What kind of pitch? Curveball. Curveball? Yeah.
1: Did you know it was coming? Were you a guess hitter?
4: No. No, I was more of a zone hitter. Mm-hmm. I looked for ball in a certain zone, and I would look for ball more so in the weak zone. Than I wouldn't uh, the strong zone mm-hmm. because you know pitchers are smart. They know if I'm if I'm if I get the ball, fastball on the inside part of the plate, they're not going to throw me to commit a pitches on the inside part of the plate until they have to. So if I got a weakness away, they're going to stay away from me until they have to come, into me. You know, so uh, I look for zone. I never looked at. Uh, Fastball, curveball, slider. I left the zone. Throw a curveball in my zone or fastball in my zone or slot in my zone. I'm ready to unload, load.
1: Mr. Dobie, two more things with you. You were uh, born in South Carolina.
4: Camden, South Carolina. Your
1: grandfather was a slave, was he not? My father. Your father was?
4: Was a, was a semi-pro baseball player mm-hmm. in Camden, South Carolina. Was your grandfather
1: a slave in South Carolina?
4: My grandfather? Yes. Was from South Carolina? Uh-huh. Yeah, but I don't, I don't, I've never heard my parents talk about him being a ball player. Oh, no. I have been. My father was. My father played for a color team in Canada, South Carolina, named the a Giants. But, and then uh, your family
1: moves up, or you move up actually to New well, Jersey, my
4: correct? My father passed when I was eight years old. Right. And my mom moved to uh, Ridgewood, New Jersey, to Patterson, New Jersey. And she got a domestic job in Ridgewood, New Jersey. But I stayed in Camden until I graduated grade school. And then I lived with my grandma. I mean, my grandma passed. I lived with my aunt and uncle. And then when I finished grammar school in Camden, South Carolina, a, a school called Mather Academy, I came to Patterson, New Jersey. And I lived with uh, my wife, My mom had some friends here. And I lived with uh, my mom's friend's mother. My mom lived in Ridgewood where she worked like I think she was a domestic worker, and I mm-hmm. think Thursdays and Sundays were her off day. So I kind of grew up, you know, almost by myself to a certain extent.
1: And I imagine sports were a great escape for you at that sports point? Sports
4: was the thing that she always preached, and I, I did them all. I mean, you know, baseball, uh, you know, I mean, football and uh, basketball and baseball and then track. I did it all in high school, and she's always said that if you keep him active, with a ball in his head, athletic, you keep him out of trouble. And it just so happened I loved to play all those sports. So I never got to the point where I was not involved in sports. And the other thing that sports never overlapped like they do today. You know, you had your, your baseball season, you had your football season, you had your, uh, your, your basketball season, and you had your track. The only thing that, that uh, you know, kind of came together was track and baseball. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, Eastside High School, where I went, the coach would let me uh, run on Mondays and play a game, baseball on Tuesdays, run on uh, Thursdays, and then play baseball on Fridays or Wednesdays. So it never bothered the schedule as far as doubling up in you know, those sports.
1: Well, and then obviously the rest is history. Mr. Dobie, the last thing for you I read an article last year in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, that talked about your relationship with your wife and how long you guys have been married. Oh, what, oh boy. Yeah. What, what year did you get married, sir?
4: 1946, August 10th.
1: And how was it on her? You know, a lot of people must have asked you over the years how playing in the American League and, and being as Well, you know, the,
4: the insults came out of stand, bother here a lot. But, you know, we, we'd been two individuals who had grown up in segregation, and we knew what it was all about. We never thought it would be to that extreme that people would be calling your names from the grandstand, or or guys on the, on the different opposing team would be, you know, be calling your names, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you'd get to the point where uh, she uh, was strong enough to be able to, to uh, understand and to take it for a while. And then it got so bad until she just stopped coming to the ballpark. But I was glad because it's hard to to it's, for me to listen to it. You know, I I could have some revenge by playing good, hitting the ball, and that kind of stuff, and she, there's nothing she could do but sit there and listen, because if she challenges somebody, then there's another problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, thank God, we you know, we got through it, and, uh, you know, she and I were married for 55 years before she passed. And, you know, we'd, we'd uh, been together for about six years, because we started in high school when she... Was a, was a sophomore and I was a junior. And then, of course, I went three years in the service. That's the long we've been away from each other until, uh, you know, I got into baseball. Well, no, I think when, when I went to Japan for a year and she was having uh, my, my fifth child, mm-hmm. so she couldn't go. But that's the long we've been away from each other.
1: Boy, that's, a, that's an amazing period of time, 61 years to spend with one person. You know, and,
4: you know, it, the only adjustment I have to make, this is the toughest word that I have... I haven't come close to making this adjustment, and, and I don't think I ever will.
1: Yeah, the baseball was easier, obviously, oh, than the baseball, adjustment
4: now, yeah, huh? you know, you had a chance to get back by playing good and hitting the ball that kind of stuff. Here, you all you can do is uh, pray and, and try to understand uh, what death is all about, but you can't because you have no answer. Whatever answer you come up with, it doesn't make any kind of sense because the only person, the only two people know
1: is God and, and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now I had asked Phil Rizzuto this um obviously a man actually feels a little bit older than you are one of the things that happens as you get a little bit older is some of your friends and obviously some family does pass on and yeah. you start thinking about some of the the times I had asked Mr. Rizzuto if he ever when he sleeps at night does he ever dream about being a younger man do you dream about your playing days do you dream about I mean does it at times feel real even perhaps time spent with your wife do you do you have those types of dreams ever I
4: don't dream about the playing time, but I do have dreams about uh, being with my wife, and certainly because she's not here in most of the places she, go, she you go, she's been there with you. And the other thing is you look back and think about how good uh, God has been to you from the standpoint of being able to be a part of Major League Baseball, and still at 78 years old still being a part of the game in another capacity and you're comfortable. You know, your kids are not on dope. Your kids are working. Your kids are enjoying their lives. And you look at the discipline that that they've gone through from the time they came into this world until now, and the closest it is between them and their their brothers and sisters, it it makes you feel good because you thank God you've accomplished that much. And people, um, your kids have listened to you and try to live the kind of life that we all should live in terms of what the Bible teaches. And this is this is a this is a very rewarding and, and, a, and a comfortable and a happy happy feeling to have. The only sad part of this whole deal is she's not here to continue to be a part of this happiness and be a part of what she's been such a big plus in terms of being the architect of the whole thing from a family standpoint. And I tell many people, I say, you know, I didn't know this until she passed, but I, I I think success I would have had as a baseball player if I had married her. But as a father, I don't think I'd had the same kind of
1: success. Well, that's a great thought because now at least when you look at your children, you've come to the point of understanding that, especially on a baseball player's schedule, somebody yeah. had to be there to make sure that the kids knew the right from the right. wrong every day as opposed to just perhaps at a season, and, and I guess now you take great pride. It sounds to me, as great as the Hall of Fame was, being inducted into the Hall of Fame and as high an honor as that is, maybe looking at your children and understanding the job that your wife and you did yeah. mm, certainly might be even bigger than all of that.
4: I think so. I think that the uh, if you look back and you take these five kids and you see that they're all doing well, and the one, the one the important thing that we always try to talk is respect people as human beings not as a tie as a Jew, but as a human being. Not the nationality comes after that, in, in our opinion.
1: Well, Mr. Dobie, I, I've waited a while, and, and I certainly appreciate your time. Congratulations on all that's coming your way. Thank uh, you. And, and I do, as I said, I, I appreciate the understanding that you have that life outside of baseball, certainly when you have a chance to look at your children and the respect that you obviously have for your wife uh, that— that comes out as easily as it did. Okay. Mr. Doby,
0: appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Johnny, you like Joe Gordon, don't you? Sure, Billy's great. Well, I want to tell you a little story about Joe Gordon and Larry Doby. When Larry first joined the club, he was kind of in the spot. Uh, something like Jackie Robinson, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Do you know what I mean? His first time up, he was nervous. Very nervous. Much more nervous than the average rookie because, you see, he had an additional load of some 15 million people riding on his back, and that's quite a load. Larry wasn't just batting for himself. He was batting for some 15 million people, 15 million people who really believed in him, and there was a lot at stake. And So when he struck out, he felt that he let all those people down, those 15 million people on his team. And after Larry struck out, he made that long trip to the dugout. And he went down the dugout steps, walked the entire length and sat down at the, the extreme corner. He was a picture of absolute dejection. The kid was heartbroken. He'd failed all these people. And the next hitter was Joe Gordon, one of baseball's really great hitters. Jake! Joe took a terrific cut at the ball. He missed it by at least six inches more than Larry had. I don't say that he did it intentionally, but I know he's never missed a pitch by that much before. And Joe, too, made that long trip back to the dugout. He didn't stop with the usual crowd and walked the entire length to sit next to this heartbroken kid at the end and he too sat in exactly the same position to prove to this boy that here at least he was just another ball player.
2: I was born in a little small town in South Carolina called Camden and there are a lot of people who had a lot to do with the success that I've had. From Patterson, New Jersey to New Geekers played against and with some of the greatest ball players that ever put on the uniform. That town treated me and my family with the greatest respect that any man could want. You know, it's a very tough thing to look back and think about things that were probably negative because you put those things on the back burner. You're proud and happy that you've been a part of integrating baseball to show people that we can live together, we can work together, we can play together, and we can be successful together. And I'm very happy and proud that I've been a part of this baseball and I'm still a part of it. You know, everything I've got, everything my family's got, we've got it from baseball. And if someone had told me 51 or 52 years ago that I would be standing here being honored by the Hall of Fame, I wouldn't believe it. But thank God I've lived long enough and I shouldn't appreciate it. And to all the Hall of Fame, all the people that work with the Hall of Fame, We thank you very much for your hospitality. Thank you.